Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you'll be with each one of us right now. Speak through me as you've just spoken through the beautiful song. What a glorious experience to live in the light of the risen lamb. Help us to understand that that doesn't have to be some far off dream, but we can begin to experience the blessing of that in the here and now. Thank you for the baby dedication and thank you for the baptism, the reminders that Jesus, you are still working and still moving in lives and hearts. Lead us and guide us, I pray in your name, amen. The book of Romans is the great book of righteousness by faith. Martin Luther, the the great reformer who nailed the 95 theses to the wall on October 31, back in the 1500s, he was a man that struggled with feeling like he had to save himself, like he was never good enough. And it was when he was reading Romans that the Holy Spirit convicted him. He's actually reading Romans chapter one and verse 17. And suddenly it dawned on him that Christ was the one who worked out his salvation. 200 years after that, John Wesley, another man who struggled with this idea and this concept of faith and, and, and being good enough before the Lord, went to a meeting and he was in an upstairs meeting and there was a man there reading the preface to the book of Romans that Martin Luther had written. And Wesley, John Wesley says, suddenly it dawned on him that Jesus was all that he needed. And there was a peace that came over him. This book, the book of Romans that we'll be in today, is a book that that speaks and has a beauty of the gospel, about the beauty of the gospel. And when we think of the gospel, we think of so many things, but, but one of the things we may not think about often, and it may surprise us, that is right here, central and key to the book of Romans, is the concept of obedience. It actually says in the book of Romans, the book of Romans is actually bookended by a call for obedience. Paul, talking about his apostleship, says that, that he was sent, that he was sent so that they would obey Christ, that they would trust Christ. It's Romans chapter one and verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then if you turn to the end of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16 and verse 26, Paul ends the book in this way. But the gospel, the mystery of Jesus Christ has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. This this book that is all about righteousness by faith tells us that the call of the gospel is to lead us to obedience through faith, or we should say as a response to faith, obedience that comes from faith. That is part of the gospel. Martin Luther said about the book of Romans that this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is the purest gospel. 
Romans is the purest gospel. And right away, Paul begins to talk about that beauty, the beauty of the gospel in Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you were Paul, if you were Paul, the writer of the book of Romans, and you were wanting to teach someone about the power of the gospel so that they could have such a faith that, that, that obedience just flowed forth from that faith. If you were wanting to, to, to teach people to really understand what the gospel is about so that they'd be so overwhelmed with, with appreciation that naturally obedience would flow out of them, where would you begin in teaching people about the power and the wonder of the gospel? Would you start with, Jesus' death on the cross, the power of Christ's death on the cross? Would you, would you start with the resurrection of Jesus, the power and the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus? Would you talk about the future hope, the glory, the, the, the promise that there is a place prepared for us where we will go one day and the promise that comes through the gospel in that? Would you talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus' kindness, of Jesus' love, of Jesus' mercy and his grace? Would you talk about how Jesus' miracles demonstrated his power and communicated to people that, that, only, that God is the ultimate source of healing? Would you talk about the power of Jesus' perfect life? Where would you start if you wanted to convey the power and the wonder of the gospel? In this book that Martin Luther referred to as the purest testimony of the gospel. Well, guess where Paul starts? Paul starts with you and with me. Why? Why does he begin here? Because nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for Jesus or their unwillingness to admit that need for Jesus. Nothing keeps us away from Christ more than our inability to see our need for Jesus or our unwillingness to admit our need for Jesus. Some of us are just stubborn people and we think we know things, we think we've got it all figured out, and we don't fully recognize just how much we need Jesus. In 2017, I went to the doctor to get a checkup on what I thought was a shoulder injury, turned out to be a neck injury. They did some MRIs and the doctor came back into the room and he said, uh, Chad, you're gonna need surgery and you're gonna need it soon on your neck. And I said to uh, this doctor, I said, cause I'm so knowledgeable in medicine and wise and understanding of MRIs. I said to this doctor, thank you. My dad is a physical therapist and I have a really good physical therapist. Shout out to Tony Tuma. I said, I think I'll start with PT and get back to you on the surgery thing. And he said, okay, it is your choice. You can walk out of here and maybe for a year or two, you'll be okay. Or maybe you'll walk out of here and you'll step off the curb wrong or you'll slip on some ice and then you won't be able to use your limbs anymore. It's your choice. <laughs> in order to appreciate the circumstances we're in and what we actually need, we have to have someone point out to us and help us to understand in very clear terms our reality. And so that is where Paul begins in the gospel, in this, in this testimony of the gospel. Paul will spend chapter, from chapters one, verse 18, 
to chapter three and verse 20, showing us why we need, you and me, need God to give us righteousness. Why we cannot achieve or earn righteousness on our own. Why we do not deserve nor in any way can attain the righteousness of Christ for ourselves. It presents this book that is the purest gospel, according to Luther, the purest form of the gospel. It presents us with a pretty dark picture of humanity. But there is a conclusion at the end, which is beautiful. Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 30, 32. What Paul does is he's writing this, this book and at the beginning of this book, he, he breaks down into three different groups and then he gives a fourth group, a kind of a summary of, with a fourth group of people to, to help them understand that, that they all fit in some category or another. And in chapters one, verses 18 through 32, we might call this group the group that, that we would consider the open and proud and bold sinners. He tells us, Paul tells us that this group that they had God revealed to them through his creative works. Chapter one, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is telling us that this first group they, just through what they see with their own eyes, just through understanding creation, had evidence of a God. And they could have found that God, but they chose not to search for him. And when these folk rejected that knowledge that was before their very eyes, they began to worship the creature rather than the creator, the created rather than the creator. And what the result was is that they fell into some great sins. And Paul begins to list these sins, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to the, to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind so that what ought not to be done, they were doing. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. All those sound kind of rough, and some of you may say, I don't have any of those, but hold on, because here it comes. They are gossips, uh-oh. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. This morning we were driving to, to church and we saw a sign at the Ashton Methodist Church. And my son said, Dad, look at that sign. I like that sign. And here's what it said. It said, children, respect your parents. They graduated high school without Google. I like that. Did you like that? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I told Dave, not only did we not have Google, we didn't have the internet. I thought that was pretty good. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you, I can find myself in that list. I can find myself in that list. But Paul knew that there would be someone, there would be some people that wouldn't be able to see themselves in that list. They wouldn't realize that they were doing those things as well. And so then Paul shifts to another group of sinners 
We could call these the, the critical moralizers. The critical moralizers. These, this group professes to have a high ethical standards and, and they apply those standards to everybody else except for themselves. Both these groups, both the first group and this critical moralizers have a knowledge of God as a creator. Both know that God is judge and both contradict their knowledge through their behavior. Both groups do things that Paul just described. There in chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now he's talking to, to people who acknowledge that they know right and wrong and they say the other people are doing wrong. For in trespassing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. These people do the exact same things as the people in the first list. Then what makes them different? What makes them different? It is this. The difference between these two groups is that the first group do things they know to be wrong and they approve of others who do them and they don't try to hide it, which is at least consistent. The second group do what they know to be wrong and yet they condemn others when they see them doing those same things, which is hypocritical. One group openly says we're sinners. And we're okay with that. The other says, we know God's goodness. So we're going to keep on doing what we're doing and we're just gonna kind of keep it silent and we're going to, to just trust that God's good enough that he won't judge us because we know what is good and not. And Paul writes to them in chapter two and verse four, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The first group had the witness of nature to lead them to God. The second group has the witness of God's goodness to lead them to God. Neither of these witnesses were to lead them to more sin, but that's what these people kept on doing. The second group are the critical moralizers. Can you see yourself in that group? Can you see yourself in that group? I can see myself in that group. I find as Timothy Keller writes, no one truly lives up to their own standards. I presume upon God's goodness and don't realize his goodness is there to lead me to repentance, not just to excuse my sins while I condemn someone else's sins. And this, this, this section that Paul is writing to these critical moralizers, this section ends with a reminder of what Francis Schaeffer referred to as the invisible tape recorder. Listen to verse 15 and 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or, or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. As Schaeffer writes, it is though an unseen recorder is around each of our necks. It records the things we say to others and about others and how we think they ought to live. Then at that last day when God the judge will come, he'll take that recorder off our necks and he'll say, I will be completely fair. I will simply play this tape back and judge you on the basis that you have judged others. Now who would be able to stand amongst that? And if we're honest, the answer is no one. I can see myself in the first group. I know some of those sins too well. 
I can see myself in that second group too. I know that sometimes I hold people to a standard that I don't always live by. But then there is a third group. This will be the self-confident legalists. And this is found in Romans chapter 2, 17, chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. These folk actually are outwardly pretty good. They, they really do try to live by the precepts and, and live according to God's direction and law. They're not trying to hide things. In fact, in fact, they're quite proud of the way they live. In fact, in these passages, there's six things that Paul lists that these people are proud of. And I'm going to share with you what those six things are, and then I'm going to interpret them for you in our modern day speech, if I could, okay? The first one is you call yourself a Jew. They're proud of this. We could maybe say in our modern language, you call yourself a Christian, or maybe a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You're really proud of that. They're proud of the fact that they rely upon the law. They really lean on that law. Could we say in our modern context, and they really lean upon the Sabbath. They really rely upon that knowledge of the Sabbath. Paul said they brag about their relationship to God and, and their chosenness under God. Could we say that, that, that some may brag about being the last day church, the remnant church? Paul says, you brag about the fact that you know his will and you approve of what is superior. Could we say that we sometimes are proud of the fact that we have a little extra insight from some little books that are called the Conflict Series that really give us some good insight and wealth of knowledge? Are we kind of proud of that sometimes? You are instructed by the law. In other words, not only do they know the law, but, but man, they, they, they are led by this law. They have that law memorized, quote, they can cross-reference it. They may not be able to lead people to Christ through the gospel presentation, but, but man, they can sure tell them what's right and wrong. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind. Could we say that these people see themselves as a people having the last day message to share to the world? Paul, by the way, is not actually saying any of these things are bad. If you read the text, he's not actually condemning anything. There is nothing wrong with any of the above. Here is the problem. The problem is these people, could we maybe say some of us, are making these good things a system of salvation. A system of salvation. The content of their thinking is fine, but using this content as a way of, of, of verifying their eternal life in the end leads to eternal death. Paul tells them this isn't the case. This isn't the case. He says, because even if they've slipped up in just one moment, then what does the Bible tell us? If you break the law of one part, you break all of it. If they slip up at just one moment, they are just as much sinners. They are just as guilty as the people in the first list. They are just as guilty as the critical moralizers. And no amount of their good works will save them. No amount of being a part of the remnant will save them. No amount of having the last day message will save them. Has anyone in here ever thought, I'm a good person, I'll be okay. I've done the right things, 
I'll be saved. I go to church on the right day. I'll be okay. I've stayed faithful to my husband. I've stayed faithful to my wife. I am okay. And Paul writes back, did you slip up anywhere ever? If so, then nope, you're not okay. You're not okay. Do you see yourself in any of these three groups? Because guess what? I can see myself in all three of these groups. In all three of these groups. Just in case we don't see ourselves in any of these groups, Paul wraps it up with this fourth group. Paul wraps it up with this fourth group. And he just says, how am I going to say this? What, what am I going to say then? In fact, he asked the question in, 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 uh, in chapter three and verse nine. Well, what shall we say then? He's asking himself, it's a rhetorical question because he knows what he's going to say. Well, what shall we say? If you, if you don't see yourself as like the really obvious bad sinners and, and, and you don't see yourself as the critical moralizers that hold others to a standard that you yourself don't live up to. And if, and if you don't see yourselves as the, as the legalists, then, 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 then let's just wrap it all together. And I'm just going to tell you this, Paul says in verse nine, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the big summary of this passage. We are all lost. And there is no degrees of lostness. None whatsoever. Tim Keller told a, gave an illustration and he explained it this way, and I like this illustration. He said, imagine three people are in Hawaii. Any of you been to Hawaii? Any of you been to Japan? Any of you been to Hawaii and thought about swimming to Japan? Probably not. Tell, Tim Keller tells a story about three people that are in Hawaii, and they think to themselves, why don't we try to swim to Japan? The first person gets in the water, and they're really just dog paddlers. They can't really swim very well. And, and they start to go, and they're just a little bit in, and all of a sudden they sink, and they're they drown. They're gone. The next person gets in and starts to swim and, and, and they can swim better. They've swum, swam all their lives, but, but, but they mainly swam in like closed pools and closed environments. And so they've never been out in the open water like this and, and the, the currents and the waves start to get at them and, and then they sink and, and they die. The third person is actually a champion swimmer. Swims in open water, does Ironman triathletes. That's probably why he's in Hawaii. He's training for the Ironman the Kona Ironman, and he's thinking, I'm going to swim to Japan. He swims miles and miles and miles. Maybe let's just even say he's like that lady who swam to Cuba, and he can swim 20, 30, 40 miles. Say he could even swim all 90 miles, but at some point, he sinks, and he dies too. Let me ask you this question. Is one more drowned? Is drowned a word? Is that a word? Yes. Is one more drowned I know you teach science. I don't know why I was asking you, Nathan. I don't know. <laughs> Where's Lisa Fralick? Is drowned a word? Uh, is one more drowned than the others? It doesn't matter at all which swam further. None were anywhere near Japan, and each one ends up dead just as much as the others. What a miserable lot we are. We're all hopeless on our own. Brothers and sisters, sin is destroying us. 
In that passage that we just read, that's what Paul is telling us. In verse 10, he's telling us we are all guilty and all condemned because of our sin. In verse 11, he's telling us that our minds are being deceived by the wickedness of this world and we can't really understand it. In the second part of verse 11, he says, we're not even seeking after God properly. In verse 12, he tells us our wills have chosen the will of the world over the will of God. He tells us in verse 13 that, that, that even if we think we're good, our, the deceit is still on our tongues and destruction still comes out of our mouths. In verses 15 through 17, he tells us that we are destroyers of human relationships. And in verse 18, he tells us that not only that, but we don't even honor and respect God truly as he deserves to be respected. And thus we are destroying that relationship as well. Paul is wanting people to understand the power and the beauty of the gospel. And he starts off by telling them, you're in one of these camps. You're in one of these camps. It is known as the doctrine of total depravity. The mathematician Blaise Pascal said, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. Yet without the understanding of this doctrine, it's incomprehensible for us to understand truly the power and the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the saving grace of the gospel, Jesus Christ. If I do not see who I truly am, then I don't ever really see who Jesus truly is and all that he's done to save me. If you understand, though, who you truly are, if I understand who I truly am, then I'm grateful for the next word. Because when I read this and I see myself in that first group and I see myself in that second group and I see myself in that third group, I go, man, am I in trouble? And at that point, so many of us do one of two things. We either lose hope or the second thing is, is we go, I better buckle down and try even harder. We go right back to the third group. Let's try just a little bit more. If I focus just more, if I'm just a little more disciplined in this, if I'm just a little more disciplined in that. We're being obedient, but it's not an obedience that comes from faith. It's not an obedience of appreciation. It's an obedience of, I better figure this out, save myself. If we see who we truly are, though, it's a scary, scary picture. That is why the next word that I'm going to read to you is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. If you are a great sinner as I am, and if you've understood sin to the degree that some of us have, and even if you don't understand it to that level, but you understand what it's like to be a critical moralizer, you understand what it's like to be a legalist, to live under that burden. If you understand that, then this next word is gonna be wonderful because it tells us that all of us are condemned, but the next word says, but, Amen. but, but. You see the but in Romans chapter three and verse 21 reverses all that came before it. The but in chapter three and verse 21 has the power to wash away all those sins in that first group. The but in Romans chapter three and verse 21 has the power to take me away from being a critical moralizer, hiding my sins to being open and honest and before God and before God's people. The but in Romans chapter three and to verse 21 has the power to take away this need that I have to try to save myself. The but reverses everything. Romans chapter three, verse 21 says, but now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything you've done, apart from anything you know. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Do you understand what that just said? It just said, you can't keep the law. But if you believe in Jesus, he kept the law perfectly. And that's your record. It just said, you can't earn salvation. But if you believe in Jesus, he's already earned it. And so it's already yours. It just said, though you may have all those sins in that first list, though you may have all the sins of all three groups, if you believe in Jesus, his blood erases all those things. And the record in heaven says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you are cleansed. When you and I understand who we truly are, then we are ready to see who Jesus truly is. The only one to look for for freedom from our past. The only one to look to for strength in our present. And the only one to look to for hope in our future. That is who Jesus is. And that is what Paul is saying, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not that, that I feel good on occasion. The power of the gospel is not that there's even a, a home somewhere prepared for me. The power of the gospel is this. Though I am lost, now I am found by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished works. And he rests Amen. on Jesus and Jesus alone. And folks, it's only at that place where you'll truly learn how to live in thankful obedience when you look at Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the power of the gospel, not the power of the gospel to change someone else, not the power of the gospel to, to do miracle things in my health or in my, in my physical strength, but the power of the gospel to save us Truly, how great you are, God. How wonderful and powerful and majestic you are. Lord, may our souls sing out to you and may we live our lives overflowing with obedience because we have faith that only Jesus and Jesus alone can save us. Amen.